0: Welcome to London Lopate at large. I'm London Lopate. The latest book by Robert Ovitz, a senior lecturer in political science at San Jose State University, argues that the United States Constitution was actually intended as a rule book to protect capitalism from democracy. The book, We the Elites, Why the U.S. Constitution Serves the Few, is published by Pluto Press and brings Robert Ovitz to our show now. Welcome. Thank you, Leonard. Glad to be here. It was written in secret by 55 of the richest white men and signed by only 39 of them. Uh, the, The U.S. Constitution is the sacred text of American nationalism. How were the 55 selected?
1: That's a very great question, Leonard. The states had been informed that the Congress approved a resolution. This is the... Confederate Congress under the Articles of Confederation, our first constitution. Mm. After a long effort, the Congress directed the states to send delegates to this convention in Philadelphia. To to
0: correct problems that the Articles of Confederation had failed to uh, achieve through things like elections?
1: Yeah, that's correct. Um, This had been the result of a long effort of folks like Hamilton, who had actually been calling for changes to the Articles of Confederation or a new constitution since the late 1770s. And he started to gain some allies who were finally able to get Congress to approve this, but it was a very limited authorization. It said that these delegates should just tried to amend and fix the articles, which, of course, meant that the Congress would have to approve it with consensus, and the states would also have to approve it with consensus. So the states ended up selecting 70 delegates, except for Rhode Island, which didn't participate. Mm. And out of those, the 55 showed up.
0: And then uh, some left. But uh, w- w- was one of the reasons uh, the, the weaknesses uh, in the Articles of Confederation reflected in the fact that there were at least 12 rural rebellions?
1: Well, I think that that played a huge role in the push of Hamilton, Washington, Jay, Madison and others, the two Morrises, to push for a new convention not with really the intention of fixing the articles they had seen how impossible that was there had been uh, a few uh, amendments that had come close to being ratified that were an attempt to make the changes that these economic elites really wanted to have but as soon as they get to philadelphia uh, within just a couple of days they actually throw out any effort to change the articles and instead decide that they're going to try to write a new constitution because they didn't think that the Articles was really strong enough to protect their interests so, as a class.
0: So what led the 13 uh, men to leave and three to refuse to sign this new constitution? Uh, did it matter for which states they were representing?
1: Well, it ended up mattering because in the end, if you look at the constitution, you'll see that they sign as individuals rather than as states, because Rhode Island wasn't present, New York, two of the three delegates left, leaving Hamilton by himself. So there was there was no way that uh, New York could actually cast a vote. Uh, So some of those delegates, we know why they left. There were a couple who left about halfway through and then immediately published their fragmented notes. They became pretty prominent anti-federalists, those who were opposed to ratification of the Constitution. So we know that they just didn't really trust what uh, their fellow elites, uh, we're doing uh, the three that uh, refused to sign the Constitution. Two of them became prominent anti-federalists uh, opposed to the Constitution because they preferred that the elites' interests would be better served at the state level. One of them ended up flipping his position, and uh, he was probably bribed with a job offer in the first administration, and and became a supporter of the Constitution. But getting back to your earlier question is one thing that really drove a lot of those elites to Philadelphia was that they were concerned that they had really lost their power and influence in some of the states. And uh, I I think that uh, they were kicked back on their heels, if you will, um, when the ordinary people had started to organize uh, due to also slave uprisings and rebellions, and then also uh, the difficulty they were facing in carrying out the genocidal colonial settlerism uh, in attempting to uh, exterminate Native Americans who were fighting back. And so I think uh, I call these the three insurrections. And I think these three insurrections are really what motivated a lot of these economic elites. And these were some of the wealthiest people in the uh, 12 states to show up because they needed to find a way to restore their uh, their dominance in power.
0: So were the anti-federalists, would they have wanted to keep the Articles of Confederation in place? Or did they yeah. think that a, a, just a different document was necessary?
1: Yeah, that's a a good question. And uh, The Anti-Federalists were pretty divided, unlike the Federalists, who actually stole the name of federalism and flipped it into its opposite meaning. Um, The Anti-Federalists were more divided about why they opposed the Constitution. Uh, There were some that feared that the Constitution would empower a strong national government, and that would oppress the people or potentially even be able to uh, abolish slavery a lot faster. There were, But most Anti-Federalists disliked the proposed Constitution because it took away a lot of the powers from the people. Mm. And most of the power that the population had, at least of the free white males who were empowered at the state level, Uh, belonged at the local and state government levels. The state governments had virtually unlimited power, whereas the uh, Confederate Congress, Confederate because it was under the Articles of Confederation, uh, the Congress was quite weak. And so they preferred to have a decentralized, more flat system of governance rather than a concentrated system of power in a single national government. There were also anti-federalists who just didn't trust it. They didn't have a lot of time to really read the Constitution and understand what it meant because in Philadelphia, the convention occurred under an oath of silence. They literally covered the windows in the hot summer of 1787. And except for a few people who were uh, keeping notes, Uh, Most of the rest of the population didn't know what they had produced until it finally started to circulate. So the Anti-Federalists wrote a lot of critiques there's uh, so there's there's really no one coordinated group if you will but there were some who were trying to coordinate the effort and they started to gain some success in uh, voting down the Constitution in several states into 1788. Um, but to answer your question, the anti-federalists uh, issued some really potent critiques of the power of a president who essentially could serve for life. There were no term limits then. Mm-hmm. Uh, justices who uh, were- So it was
0: really institute bringing in a king. Yeah. Uh, there were some- A version of the British monarchy? Because yeah. uh, you you say uh, the aim of the framers was to form a republic Uh and how? And that would be different than a, creating a democracy.
1: That's correct. So the uh, anti-federalists didn't necessarily. Um, all entirely agree that we didn't need to replace the articles. Some thought that this constitution could, uh, proposed constitution could be fixed, and Mm. there were a number of resolutions for changing it before they would vote to ratify, um, fixing some of these issues. Um, But there were others who believed that they should stick with the original mandate, that the uh, original authority granted by Congress was only to amend the articles, and they felt that the framers had gone too far. They had gone a bridge too far. Um, There's a really fascinating, very thoroughly documented, very long book uh, written by a law professor by the name of Klarman who uh, entitled his book The Framers' Coup for a reason, uh, because he saw what the framers had done was an explicit violation of the authority they were granted by Congress and essentially carried out a constitutional coup and uh, wrote an entirely new constitution that served their interests.
0: Would you say that although many Americans have opinions about the Constitution, they probably have little idea of what it actually says uh i I'm thinking about the people who stormed the Capitol on January sixth who claimed that they were defending the Constitution
1: do, do, yeah that's absolutely do they have right any up.
0: valid arguments there? <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. This is uh, one of the most vivid examples of uh, how little many of the the most uh, vocal defenders of the Constitution how little they really understand of what the Constitution says and how it actually functions and why it was designed. And that's that's what motivated me to write this book: uh, the uh, seditious attack on uh, Congress, we can call it seditious now because several of those leaders were just convicted yes uh, in the last couple of days of seditious conspiracy. And I think there's one more person to go uh, to be charged, and that is um, former President Trump. Wow. Uh, but these folks who attacked the Capitol, ironically, were claiming that they were trying to defend the Constitution uh, by installing Trump Uh, essentially as a kind of president for life uh, who had lost the election. And we hear this over and over again. I don't know if you recall back when uh, Obamacare was working its way through Congress uh, back around 2009, 2010. And there were a lot of people who um, argued that Obamacare would uh, be stealing their health care. And uh, when journalists interviewed some of those protesters, it turned out that they were Medicare uh, beneficiaries. They were getting government health care. Uh, so we have um, a really um, uh, dearth of understanding of how our system of government functions and certainly how the Constitution is written and, and what it does. And the January 6th insurrectionists obviously did not read the Constitution because if they did, in Article 3, they would see that um, that uh, treason is uh, is is punishable? Um, it's the only crime mentioned in the Constitution, and they would also see that in Articles One, um, and Article Four, and the Fourteenth Amendment, uh, insurrectionists um, can be suppressed by uh, the federal government, either by the president or by Congress. What they call
0: um, people out of doors, the mob, yeah. the rabble. In fact, right. the people who uh, the insurrectionists of, of January sixth. They so said that that's what they saw democracy meant, the framers. Yeah,
1: yeah. So I would I would distinguish the January sixth insurrectionists from uh, the folks that the framers were most concerned about, uh, because in this case the January sixth insurrectionists were essentially doing the work of the economic elite uh, today. Um, the economic elite. There's a, a broad swath of them who um, oppose any any sort of their use of our representative democracy uh, to make any changes whatsoever. And they would prefer to just have some sort of authoritarian strongman dictate um, what the population has to do um, in order to best protect the property and interests. But at that time, in the 1780s, the framers were dealing with a very different kind of people out of doors. This was a derogatory term that they used to describe people who worked with their hands, who worked outside, who got dirty. And should never have their hands on the levers of power inside. These were people who were actually trying to democratize the states. Uh, They were fighting for the interests of the economic majority. And it also, I think, included their reference to slaves. And it included uh, Native Americans who they were having a hard time suppressing and stealing their land.
0: So uh, in in the system they wanted, only white men with a certain amount of property would be allowed to vote and even— Their vote was limited.
1: That's correct. What would they even uh, be
0: voting on?
1: Oh, uh, well, in their states, they got to vote on a wide variety of local and state officials. Uh, In many states, uh, judges were uh, directly elected, um, local judges. Um, They voted for their state legislatures. Um, but in the uh, elections under the Constitution, uh, not many of them got to vote. Um, a plurality, uh, less than a majority, uh, were eligible to vote as a result of these property uh, requirements at the state level, which the Constitution kind of grandmothered in. Um, and so if you look at the uh, the turnout, um, it was a very small slice of the population was actually allowed to vote. And this would actually lead to uh, the first real protest and reform movement uh, that becomes the Democratic Republican clubs in the 1790s. These are uh, white men who are of modest or low income working class or small merchants and and farmers who protest that they've essentially been locked out of this uh, representative democracy. They've been prohibited from voting.
0: My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Robert Ovetz, O-V-E-T-Z. His book, We, We the Elites, Why the U.S. Constitution Serves the Few, is published by Pluto Press. WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Well, you say that in effect the Constitution was designed to impede political democracy, prevent economic democracy. And uh, I was interested in something that Senator Mike Lee of Utah said not long ago. He said, we're not a democracy. The word democracy appears nowhere in the Constitution. So there are people even today who are arguing what that the framers were arguing.
1: Absolutely. I think Senator Lee's honest admission It's kind of rare, but it's also uh, should be a warning for the rest of us. A lot of Americans grow up with the mythology around our system of government. As you as you said in your opening, it becomes kind of the the nationalist mythos of our society. And one core element of that myth is that we have a democracy. And now that we're hearing uh, far right politicians like Senator Lee admit that we don't have a democracy, we should all be very cautious about what happens uh, going forward in this society, in this system of government, uh, because the right is starting to admit that um, that the power of the property elites is uh, the ones that make the decisions. Um, and you know Senator Lee's not alone. It's just that his language is just so honest and and straightforward.
0: Would you say that your book looks at the Constitution as intended to be a rule book for elites to protect capitalism from democracy?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the way that they designed our system, um, part of that mythos, again, is that they designed it with um, a series of what we learn as checks and balances, where they separate the power of each of the branches into separate articles and then separate the power between the federal government and the states that that actually serves as a series of what I call minority checks that allows those who do not want change to be able to block that change anywhere in the constitutional system. And the result of that is a very, very little change uh, throughout our country's history, and especially right now when we need a lot of serious change to, to allow humanity to even survive this catastrophic threat of climate catastrophe, uh, but these minority checks have served uh, for 230 some odd years to prevent the majority from getting what it wants, except in those rare circumstances like Howard Zinn pointed out where the people get so well organized that uh, they become a threat and that forces reforms inside the system. But even then those reforms don't last very long because they get eroded over time. And I can give you an example of, of how uh, these minority checks have worked with uh, current issues if you like.
0: Sure. Well, first of all, um, there are Originalists today, uh, but they disagree over which feature of the Constitution's original character demands fidelity.
1: There's some debate, uh, but those originalists, um, they do have a lot of influence now because some of them are on the Supreme Court, Uh, but their arguments are kind of bizarre if you really use it as a thought experiment and take it to its uh, fullest extent, Um, an originalist essentially would deny that the amendments uh, even matter. Um, And they would argue that uh, we have to understand the Constitution the way the framers intended. And if that was the case, uh, then we have to remember that the Constitution had about 20 different references to slavery and slaves without actually using those two words. So if we were to, to go back to the way that the Framers interpreted the Constitution and the way they designed it. Then we would still have slaves. Uh, women would still be considered property of men. Uh, anybody who um, who entered uh, the country um, and had children, those children would not uh, be citizens. Uh, people who own, who owed debts could still be put into the stockades. In fact, uh, and 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 most uh, white men would not even be able to vote, let alone women and everybody else. And so I think about myself and I, I do this thought experiment with my classes and I tell my students, well, if I was uh, alive back then, I would be in the debtor stockade because I still owe a ton of student loan debt. Uh, I wouldn't be able to vote uh, and I wouldn't be a citizen because my father entered the country as an undocumented immigrant and he became naturalized. And then I was born here. So I became a citizen um, at birth. Uh, so that original all of those
0: story- rules would develop later.
1: Yeah, they develop later, exactly. So the 14th Amendment grants us uh, citizenship based on birth. Um, We don't have that originally. Mm -hmm.
0: Did it matter whether or not the framers were slave owners?
1: Yes and no. Uh, Many of the framers benefited from slavery, um, even if they don't own slaves. Uh, for example, if they were merchants or bankers or traders, they often traded and profited greatly from slave-produced goods. Maybe about a third of the framers um, owned slaves and uh, and thus were very concerned about protecting that particular form of property, which is actually the most valuable form of property uh, in the country at the time and will remain to be so uh, until, the, until it's abolished in the 13th Amendment.
0: The, the total value of slaves came to be greater at one time than the currency in circulation. So wasn't it seen as a national asset?
1: It was more than a national asset. The entire wealth and the foundation of why our country is uh, the wealthiest country in the world, has the largest economy, and is a world power, I would say, an imperialist power, is all to do with all of that wealth built up by exploiting people who are held in slavery. Uh, So the constitutional uh, framers um, have several different forms of property. One of the most important ones is slavery, but also land and debt and their interests in commerce and banking and finance. All of those different interests come together at the Constitutional Convention.
0: Where does the Three-Fifths Clause come into this story?
1: So the Three-Fifths Clause in Article One allows those with significant numbers of slaves to be able to count those slaves as if they were three-fifths of a person for the purposes of counting their population.
0: You're talking about states. So this is giving the
1: southern states more power. Yeah, mostly most of the slaves were in the Southern states, even at the time of the Constitutional Convention, but there were slaves in every state. Yes. Uh, but some of the, the states with large numbers of slaves, like Virginia, South Carolina, and Georgia, for example, they get extra representation in the House of Representatives because the number of seats in each state is based on your population. And not, not just of citizens or voters, but all population. Uh, and so that inflates the number of their seats in the House And then it also inflates the number of electors they have in the Electoral College. So as a result of that, the vast supermajority of presidents up until the Civil War were actually from big slave states and slave owners themselves. Uh, So the Three Fifths Clause is a crucial way of protecting slavery. And it serves as a minority check. It allows the small number of elites with most of the slaves to be able to block any change that they don't like in our constitutional system.
0: So, sl- large landowners and slave owners got precedence. Uh, small farmers had less input, and and uh, people in the trades and small manufacturing.
1: Well, the farm, the, the small farmers and the the skilled workers, the the craftsmen, the, what they were called at the time, the artisans, actually had divided interests at the time. Most small farmers operated outside of the market economy. They grew what they ate, and they ate what they grew. And so, if they had any surplus, they they sold it or traded it locally. There were some more affluent farmers if they were closer to the cities, closer to urban areas, closer to the coast, they tended to be uh, wealthier and more tied into the cash economy, the market economy. Uh, The artisans uh, mostly lived in the towns and the cities, and they were actually what today we would say are small business people. Uh, They were very much producing for trade in uh, other cities and other states and even uh, globally. So they had divided interests. The artisans wanted a new constitution because they wanted to have the ability to impose tariffs on imports that would protect their production and their sales. And they wanted protection for for interstate commerce. So they aligned, actually, with the elites. Um, It was a divided working class, if you will, unfortunately. The small farmers, however, were almost, without exception, um, opposed to the Constitution, because they saw their greatest power and influence lie with the states, for the reasons I talked about earlier.
0: Were they dismissed as a faction? Because uh, there was a very strong anti-factionalist sentiment among the framers.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think the most important Federalist paper, a series of editorials uh, supporting ratification was Madison's number 10. And in in number 10, Madison famously talks about how um, we have to establish a system that protects against uh, factions that might want to uh, use government to further their interests. And here he's talking about... um, He's talking about his fellow economic elites. He's talking about political parties, but he's also talking about classes. And in particular, he's concerned with the vast supermajority of the population that are small farmers, the kind that I just described, because they in some states, they're so well organized that they've actually been able to elect some of them to their state legislatures and be able to change state laws to implement policies that I refer to as forms of economic democracy to further and protect their own in- interests.
0: Doesn't the translation of economic power into political power remain an issue today?
1: Oh, absolutely. In fact, I would say Is that— it,
0: Does it come that, directly out of the Constitution, or would that just have been a national, a natural consequence of the way things develop over the years?
1: I would say that the problem that we face with concentrated economic power and its influence in the political system, we can see that with the train, the train strike being blocked by Congress right now— Um, By Democrats,
0: interesting. The the Democrats control the Senate, and yet they uh, eliminated one major aspect of the agreement.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I would uh, I would argue that this problem of economic power is really a symptom of the Constitution. It's not the cause of our constitutional problems. The Constitution, for the reasons that I've been talking about, establishes the ability of the economic elites to be able to block any reforms or changes that threaten their interests. And as a result, after over two centuries, the wealthier have gotten tremendously much more wealthier. And the rest of us have stayed stagnant or even gotten worse off. Uh, And this example of what the Congress is doing to the railroad workers and what President Biden has done is just yet another long example of the way that the economic elites use our system of constitutional government to undermine the interests of the working class.
0: Didn't the Supreme Court once interpret the First Amendment to mean that using money to buy an election is protected free speech?
1: Yeah, Citizens United case of uh, just a little over a decade ago. Um, absolutely. So that's
0: accepted. a recent thing, actually.
1: It's most recently Citizens United and um, a few other cases after that. Uh, but it actually goes back to Buckley versus Vallejo of the mid 1970s. Um, a Supreme Court ruling gutted the Federal Elections Act. Uh, By uh, beginning to uh, prohibit any restrictions on outside spending in elections, Uh, it was much more modest. Citizens United just blew that wide open. And um, we've just seen an astronomical increase from one election cycle to the next of how much money is pouring into elections.
0: You're listening to Lettered Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. We hold these truths to be self-evident That all men are
1: created equal That they are endowed
0: hope you're enjoying my conversation with Robert Ovitz. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, We the Elites, Why the United States Constitution Serves the Few. Just go online to give2wbai.org to or call 212- 209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's Give, and then the number 2, WBAI.org, or call 212 But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large, and thank you very much. And we return now to Robert Ovitz. His book, We the Elites, Why the U.S. Constitution Serves the Few, is from Pluto Press. He's a senior lecturer in political science at San Jose State University, and the author of... Uh, a number of other books, When Workers Shot Back, Class Conflict from 1877 to 1922, and also Haymarket. Don't most liberals tend to think that the Constitution was designed to give us rights?
1: Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting that you played another version of the uh, second paragraph from the Declaration of Independence. Mm-hmm. Because many Americans, again, this is another leg of that that multi multi leg stool of mythology around what the Constitution does, and that is that uh, many Americans confuse that passage in the Declaration of Independence with the Constitution. In fact, the Constitution, as it's ratified, the Articles doesn't really say very much about the 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 rights and responsibilities of the people. Uh, There's very few references to rights in the articles, and they don't actually start to appear until those first 10 amendments are ratified by the first Congress, what we call the Bill of Rights, although they're not all about rights of people.
0: You write that no part of the Constitution is more misunderstood, misquoted, and overvalued than the preamble.
1: Yeah, the preamble is really kind of the forgotten uh, child of the Constitution, if you will. Uh, It doesn't really get a lot of attention. Uh, for various reasons. It's very unlike the rest of the Constitution. Uh, the preamble lays out a series of uh, really you could think of as values or um, of principles. Um, and then the rest of the Constitution, the seven uh, articles, uh, are really all kind of dry and logistical about the nuts and bolts of uh, the different powers and the limits on those powers, particularly with Article One, Congress, uh, and then how the system really will function. And the preamble, though, I think is really in some ways tells us the most about the intention of what the framers were trying to do in the Constitution. And uh, we, we often misunderstand it. What's the um,
0: significance of the phrase "We the People of the United States"?
1: Yeah, see that—that's uh, it's the first three words which motivated me to title my book uh, "We the Elites." Is one of the most widely misunderstood. It's um, it's often understood in the way that that "Schoolhouse Rock" uh, video. This is something I used to grow up watching as a kid. Uh, the "Schoolhouse Rock" videos, particularly about American history, is that we think we the we the people refers to us as American society today, as diverse as we are racially and ethnically, and in terms of gender identity and uh, class and so forth. Uh, But I argue that we, the people meant only those people who were eligible uh, to participate in the system of government, who were authorized and protected by the Constitution. and That was a very small slice, essentially of of, uh, wealthy uh, white men.
0: Were John Jay, James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, George Washington, and most of the other framers in basic agreement?
1: No, the elites all had different competing interests um, because of that. Because Thomas Jefferson's name doesn't appear in that list. No, absolutely. Jefferson's in France, along with John Adams at the time as two of the ambassadors um and so they're they're not they're not immediately involved in it except from a distance through a series of letters, although John Adams was very influential because he had written a book about the uh, state governments that influenced the thinking of many of the framers who, who read it. Uh, but the the original framers were divided. Uh, they were all members of the elite class, the ruling class, but they were all divided because they had different competing, property and interests um, and what really kind of comes out of the convention, and this is really engineered by a lot of the work by Madison uh, to bring them together, is that they realize that regardless of how their property and interests differ, that ultimately they're all better served by being united under a system that protects all forms of property. And so many of the compromises, quote unquote, or concessions, quote unquote, that are made at the convention are actually made between these different property interests among the elites in order to protect each other's interests.
0: What was Madison's role in creating the structure of Congress, the, the bicameral structure of Congress?
1: Well, that was that was um one of his most important contributions, but he also had uh, he had intended originally for the Congress to be able to what he called negative the states. He wanted to give the Congress the ability to overturn laws passed by the states, and I think that was uh, really one of his uh, most important focuses in the convention. He ultimately lost that, but he ended up winning it in a different way um because as uh the famous uh economic historian Charles Beard uh informs us in a little book he wrote about uh judicial review in the Supreme Court at the, the that, beginning of the 20th century uh in the beginning of the at the beginning of the of the um uh, judicial review yeah. is um really created uh finally and uh uh, definitively by Marbury versus Madison in 1803.
0: No, but I meant Beard's book is what, 19-
1: 1910 oh, or right. something
0: like that, 15, That's whatever. Right.
1: That's right. Yeah. So Beard wrote at the early uh, in the early 1900s. Um, and he shows that, uh, in fact, Madison uh, ended up winning because there's no mention of judicial review in the constitution although nobody was opposed to it. And so uh, Madison uh, didn't get his uh, veto of state laws, if you will, in in the Congress, uh, because they didn't really want to put it in there. They were afraid that too many people would oppose the Constitution if they knew that uh, they had intended uh, to give the federal government the ability to overturn laws passed by the states.
0: They wound up giving the states a lot of power Because of the structure of the bicameral Congress and the problems caused by the Electoral College.
1: Well, uh, the uh, bicameral Congress uh, is understood to have given the states more power in the Senate. uh, Yes. Because all the states had uh, been given the same number of senators.
0: Whether they had a large population or a small one. And everybody was happy with that? Everyone went along with that?
1: Well that the compromise there was made uh, by essentially allowing the states to um to pick the senators rather than making them directly elected like the house. Uh so that was what en- it ended up helping engineer uh the creation of the Senate in that way. But I actually argue that the Senate itself really hides Um, a disproportionate distribution of power, particularly to um, small population states that have a lot of slaves. And one of your
0: chapters is headed Congress designed for inefficiency.
1: Yeah, right. And uh, so the the design of uh, the Congress um, really ends up serving uh, to keep the population divided, Uh, and uh, create multiple minority checks so that it becomes incredibly difficult to get anything passed unless it overcomes the opposition um, or makes concessions to the opposition so that they end up rewriting the laws uh, to serve their interests.
0: What about the creation of the Electoral College? Five presidents have been elected despite losing the popular vote. What were they thinking
1: Yeah. So this is a this is the ultimate minority check, if you will, because let's say, for example, um, a bill passes and manages to pass through the Congress through both houses. It overcomes the minority checks. Ultimately, it has to face a potential veto by the president. And even to this day, uh, that president is uh, not necessarily the winner of the popular vote. Um, we um, we see this example, uh, for example, with uh, President Trump having won uh, the Electoral College pretty handily while he actually slightly lost the popular vote to uh, Senator Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. Why the framers designed the Electoral College in that way uh, is for many different reasons. Uh, Hamilton is pretty explicit uh, when he talks about in one of the Federalist Papers that um, this becomes a kind of independent check on the will of the people Um, in the same way that Madison in a different federalist paper also describes the Senate in that way, that the Senate would serve as a kind of break to hold back the people from hurting themselves. The framers didn't really like democracy. They didn't trust democracy because remember, in the ancient Greek, the demos is the people and Krusty is a system run by the people. And instead, what they're trying to do is create a republic. Uh, where there's representatives who are not necessarily elected. um, And they're just, they don't have a king, but these representatives make decisions on behalf of the elites. So having um, a a king is a bridge too far. So they design a president that not only can serve for life as long as they're reelected every four years. uh, But ultimately, the popular vote does not determine who gets elected that the popular vote of each state determines which candidate or party gets the electors of that state. And then those electors are free to cast their vote for that person or not. Today, about half the states have rules that bind the electors to the candidate for whom uh, they were selected because they won the state. But half the states still don't have those kinds of rules so it is it is inevitably possible that for example somebody who's incredibly popular by the vast majority of the population say a bernie sanders kind of figure uh could get overwhelmingly elected and win the electoral college as well win the popular vote and and overwhelmingly the electoral college and half the state's electors could cast their vote for somebody else uh, because they're afraid of, uh, of somebody who perhaps is a believer in socialist democracy or some other sort of uh, political system that the elites oppose. When did the phrase checks and balances come into usage? Checks and balances has, a, has a really evolved over time. Um, checks and balances does not actually appear in the Constitution. Uh, But uh, over time, political scientists and uh, and, and, and lawyers and law professors have uh, evolved this uh, terminology as a way of describing how these powers are shared by the different branches. And it allows one branch to be able to have a say over what the other branch does. And the argument is that and you hear this from politicians all the time. Uh, you know, Speaker Pelosi is very fond of talking about how we have co-equal branches, which is actually inaccurate. Uh, the branches are not designed with equal amounts of power, but they do have many different possibilities of blocking what each other does. And there's a few exceptions to that where a branch can act without uh, having another branch Uh, be able to stop it. And then it also, one thing we forget is that our federalist system of shared power between the federal government and the states also gives the federal government the final say or the supremacy power uh, in Article 6 to be able to block what the states are doing.
0: Well, wasn't the United States of America referred two times as composed of independent states, each with significant powers?
1: That's how it's described in the Declaration of Independence. Ah, uh, but The not, last paragraph – yeah, the last paragraph of the Declaration of Independence uh, makes multiple references to free and independent states, United but, States of America. But not the Constitution.
0: My guess is Robert Ovitz, whose latest book is We the Elites, Why the U.S. Constitution Serves the Few, published by Pluto Press. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and uh, streaming live at WBAI. Dot org. Hasn't the language of the various early amendments to the Constitution been a source of conflict um, throughout our history? The Second Amendment, for example, is a perfect example. Oh, yeah. And the, the first one, too.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, uh, well, we start with uh, the First Amendment. It uh, makes a reference only to Congress shall make mm-hmm. no law. And it really took over a century really for uh, the First Amendment to actually be applied uh, to the states. Um, And we know during World War I, um, the uh, freedom of speech uh, was not really uh, enshrined uh, until uh, those famous cases dealing with anarchists and labor organizers and socialists, uh, some of whom were opposed to World War I and others who were organizing uh, industrial workers to strike, uh, were uh, prosecuted for their speech and for um, assembly, essentially organizing. Um, They ended up losing those cases. Hundreds of them were deported. uh, But it's established uh, a poor precedent that was later overturned. Uh, so I like to tell my students that if you like having freedom of speech, which is one of the most famous and um, widely loved rights in the Constitution, then you can thank uh, the left for that. Uh, the Second Amendment, however, is uh, much misunderstood as well. In um, the way that I uh, teach my students to read uh, the the uh, Constitution is to read each clause as modifying um, the the next clause. Um, So the the Second Amendment starts a well-regulated militia Mm -hmm. being necessary to the security of a free state, each separated by a comma, um, tells us everything that the framers intended then. And that was that uh, the the states were afraid um, that Article One would allow the Congress to establish a national army and navy. And um, some of the anti-federalists argued, well, this is evidence that the states will be turned into administrative bodies oppressed by the national government. Um, And so the Second Amendment was added and written in such a way as to limit who could have a gun only for the purpose of serving in the militia to protect the security of the states. Now, the Second Amendment was also incredibly important. And there's some amazing work in in the last couple of decades demonstrating this because those militias had multiple roles. They didn't just protect the states from invasion. They also were the tip of the spear of settler colonialism. They were used to carry out attacks to exterminate and drive out Native Americans and steal their lands. They also served duly as slave patrols and as the police. So we can trace the origins of of the police back to the militias um, in their role uh, serving these three functions.
0: In a way, didn't Article 3 give the courts immense powers more than the other branches? Did the Constitution make the Supreme Court the most powerful arm uh, of government in the new country?
1: Not at first. It took over a century until the Supreme Court even had its own building. It wasn't until President Taft actually got Congress to appropriate money to build the Supreme Court. So the court itself as one of the three branches was long seen as the weakest. But one of the things that emerges almost immediately, even before Marbury versus Madison, in several cases before Marbury, the Supreme Court starts to argue that it has the ability to review the constitutionality of state and federal laws. And the reason that it can do that, and again, here, uh, Charles Beard's long forgotten book about uh, the Supreme Court and Judicial Review uh, is worth reading. It's out of print, but a lot of people have forgotten about this book, is that he documents very, very um, meticulously how the framers actually wanted to give the courts that power of judicial review to be able over to turn any law passed by elected representatives uh, any new regulation made by elected and appointed officials in the executive branch and also state court rulings. Um, but they were afraid to put it in the Constitution because they thought it would be unpopular and would kill ratification. And so Marbury versus Madison is where we credit the origin of judicial review. And that's actually wrong because there are these earlier cases. But what judicial review does is it empowers the courts to give uh, ultimately those nine justices, who actually nowhere in article three are given the term of life, um, but only for good behavior. Uh, But it gives these justices appointed indefinitely the ability to overturn anything that any other part of of the government wants to do. And that is also one of the ultimate minority checks. Um, and we can see how horrific it's turned out to be for the vast majority, for example, with the Dobbs ruling that threw out Roe v. Wade uh, and uh, with the Janus ruling uh, that has uh, decimated uh, unions uh, because it prohibits uh, unions from getting a, share fair, uh, a fair share of, uh, of dues from everybody who benefits from uh, a union contract and on and on.
0: Does the uh, We don't have much time, but I wondered whether the Constitution addresses the issue of taxation.
1: Absolutely. So one of the most important things uh, that the framers set out to accomplish was to get the outstanding debts repaid. During the American Revolution, uh, the Congress and the states were in debt not only to France and Spain and the Netherlands, and in fact, had defaulted on loans to France – uh, but they were in debt to the economic elite and um, the states had a hard time passing and collecting taxes because of various kinds of armed rebellions like the shays rebellion there was also a shortage of cold hard cash literally coins and um, gold and silver and so the congress and the states had issued hundreds of millions of dollars in dollar terms at that time uh, of various forms of debts and except for a few states that had paid off those debts, they were incapable of being able to pay those debts. And so one of the things that really drives a lot of those elites to uh, Philadelphia is that many of them are are very concerned about restoring the credit of the country, quote unquote. And they, they, they see giving the federal government, the Congress, the ability to impose taxes. Um, as crucial to doing that. And in fact, this is what Hamilton will uh, run with when he becomes the first appointed official in the Washington administration as the secretary of the Treasury and establishes his, uh, his financial plan that still governs how the U.S. Uh, capitalist economy functions today and, and in fact is the foundation for the global capitalist system of the, uh, of the last couple centuries.
0: And one more
1: question in
0: just a few moments. Is the. US. less of a democracy than most of the countries of the world that have one person, one vote? Uh, whereas uh, we have the a very complicated situation where my vote doesn't count as much as the vote of somebody in North Dakota.
1: Yeah, I think of our system as an exceptional type of representative democracy. It's exceptional not because it functions better or it's more democratic, but it's exceptional because most other representative democracies in the world have a completely different system because they see our system of quote unquote checks and balances as impeding the ability of the population to vote for what it wants and to get for what it votes for Um, in a parliamentary system. Uh, parties get the proportion of the vote that corresponds to uh, – the, they get a, a proportion of the seats in the parliament that corresponds to their, their share of the popular mm-hmm. vote. In our system, it doesn't work out that way. It doesn't work in the Electoral College. Many times it doesn't even happen in the House and the Senate where the minority party actually got more votes. Because so our system
0: works as it was designed to work. Uh- <laughs> In the end, Uh, we've run out of time, unfortunately. I I want to thank you so much for being on our show. Uh, My guest has been Robert Ovitz, We the Elites, Why the U.S. Constitution Serves, the few published by Pluto Press. A last word because I interrupted you?
1: Well, indeed, I would would argue that the framers did not intend to design a democracy but design a system of rule by the economic elites. Hmm. So I appreciate you having me on, Leonard. It's really been a pleasure talking with you.
0: And I thank you so much for being our guest. Uh, That does bring us to the end of our show. My great thanks to our executive producer, Kaziah Glow, and to our audio engineer, Reggie Johnson, for all of the invaluable work that they do throughout the week. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org and our podcast, which has surpassed one million places, available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is lended.com. Lopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the station coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We're asking all of our listeners to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's 212-209-2950 or give and then the number two WBAI. Because we need your help to keep bringing you this unique, in depth content, information you don't usually get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Linda Lopez at Large can receive a free copy of the book we've been discussing with the elites over the Why the U.S. Constitution Serves the Few by Robert Ovitz. So make that call right now, 212 209 2950, or go online to give to wbaiorg You might also Consider becoming a sustaining member for $10, $15, $20, however much you can afford a month. And that allows us to plan for the future. Either way, I hope you'll call right now because we rely 100% on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants. And we are the only station in the New York Radio Dell that's 100% listener sponsored. Help us remain alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support. We're off next Monday, but I hope you can join us again on Tuesday when environmentalist Pete Morosky will be taking your calls. We'll see you then. Have a great weekend.